Hello, kindred spirits, and welcome to the Modcast, the podcast of the Ella Montgomery Institute, broadcasting from... Well, actually, we're broadcasting from our homes today. And let me make sure I get the title right. Is today's title, uh, Christy, is it a very merry modcast? Is that what we're calling today's episode? That's what I went with. I'm not sure. <laughs> it's a great one. I like it. Yeah, there we go. And notice we've already broken our walls down. That's right. You just heard from our technical director, Christy McKinney, who's usually in the background and is uh, the instructional multimedia specialist here at UPEI. And then sort of tumbled into our Montgomery world as the technical director of the Modcast. It's great to talk to you now here with us as a group, uh, Christy. Hi, yeah. <laughs> I do prefer to just listen to everything, but uh, <laughs> I've been pulled into this today, so let's see how it goes. There we go. There we go. And we, we have some others that are joining us. Uh, we have Elisa. Elisa Gillespie is our... Well, uh, you're actually the editorial assistant for the Ella Montgomery uh, Journal. It's the Journal of Ella Montgomery Studies, I, sh I should know. Um, and uh, that's that's your job. And you're a big Montgomery fan. Is that right, Elisa? Yeah, I am. <laughs> uh, good stuff. And Elisa's done some research for us and helped mm -hmm. us set up our structures. And we wanted to chat with her a little bit here at Christmas time as well. And of course, we have our our great director, uh, the woman in charge, our boss, uh, Kate Scarth, <laughs> who, <laughs> who is, a, of course, a Montgomery scholar and the chair of Ellen Montgomery Studies and works with the Ellen Montgomery Institute and was one of our first guests, I believe, on the podcast. Is that right, Kate? Yeah, that's right. It's good uh, to be back. That's right. Yeah. And uh, I also, I think it was you and I that sort of cooked this up at one point. Mm -hmm, was mm -hmm. it at the Fox and the Crow at yeah. the UPIs? Yeah, that's right. Poor Brenton just kind of mentioned off the cuff over a coffee. Is there an Ellen Montgomery podcast? That'd be a cool <laughs> thing to have. And then uh, I don't even think we talked about it much more at that coffee. And then I ran uh, with it and then and anyway got some funding and then before you knew it you were the host of the modcast for which I'm very grateful well this is it like I, I and and people out there in the world if you've done podcasts you know that it's not usually sort of that magical that you mention it and then someone comes back to you with well no so we've got a platform we've got some editorial assistants we get you a technical director uh, sponsored by UPEI shirk funding you know so it's okay you make it sound like a simple thing but this is really good of a huge deal yeah yeah and of course we we started this like i don't know january or february but by the time we got started the whole world had kind of changed right mm -hmm. this is 2020 right mm -hmm. so yeah, yeah we kind of planned to like get together in person and then yeah. brenton and i actually only met i only like saw you in person the last week but we had that's to drop, right. do like a door drop of the Yeti mic to do a test. Yeah, that's right. So. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We did a social distanced uh, modcast tech drop. Uh, I think it was uh, in the last week or so. It was just such a, a, a funny year. So yeah, so I've never actually met Christy in person uh, for yeah. until we've recorded at least half a dozen episodes. Yeah, and I don't think mm -hmm. I've met you in person, Lisa. Have I? Um, you spoke to me once when I was in the hallway uh, <laughs> in the main building. 
Oh, <laughs> uh, the grand, the grand speaking down. Uh, yeah, no, that's great. And uh, I do want to note that, Alisa, you have on your wall, mm-hmm. I, before I, I actually ask that question, I should note, this is our Christmas episode, and we just wanted to chat. <laughs> and we're going to share some um, stories and uh, share what we're uh, having as our Christmas toast. But horrid little goose, it says, is this your Christmas um wish list sort of that's in a heart <laughs> on the wall behind you so actually it was a christmas gift the light board from my brother last year and the only thing i could think to put on it was a horrid little goose so it's actually from montgomery's one of her very first uh journal entries in the selected journal collection and it was one of the first things i ever read by her and so i just read it and i was like wow we really are kindred and I have been sleeping on Ella Montgomery. So <laughs> that's really good. Well, I think that's interesting in a couple of ways. One is that uh, she does have a bit of a saucy, um, mm-hmm. a bit of a spiciness to her, right? Although it, it doesn't come out in every story. Some of the best ones, I think, have that spice in with the sugar. Yeah. Also, <laughs> one of your first introductions to reading Montgomery was her journals. <laughs> I, yeah. I don't. I'm pretty sure that's not the typical story. Kate, you actually okay. run like uh, your LM Montgomery story program. Is that is how typical is that that it's not a novel but a journal entry that that draws a reader in? Yeah, that's right. So Trina Freeber and I have been collecting stories about how people have first discovered Montgomery. And I would say that, you know, by and large, it's the usual, you know, or the the roots that you might expect. Anna Green Gables, um, especially Anna Green Gables being given to someone or read to someone by, you know, a mother or, you know, another important figure. But of course, the Kevin Sullivan um, series is also a, a common introduction. And then, of course, now Anne with an E. So yes, I would say that the journals stand, stand out as unusual. That's an interesting uh, first start. And Elisa, who does she call the horrid little goose? I'm curious. Oh. Herself. Herself. <laughs> she says, I am such a horrid little goose. And I went, me too. So. Word. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that, 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 that's really intriguing all right well let's before we get into kind of some christmas readings from uh, montgomery or montgomery's world what what are you uh, toasting us with today well, let's start with you elisa what do you have to toast us with um i have an eggnog latte and i mm-hmm. don't know if i can say where i got it from uh. <laughs> <laughs> well we're not we're not sponsored but i think it, it's a it's okay to get a nod because i think this is one of their specialty times of year right yeah yeah. Yeah. So, thank you, Starbucks. <laughs> thank yeah. you, Starbucks. <laughs> mug too. <laughs> mug. That's right. Eggnog latte. A little jealous. I just want to say. Um. And but very tempted. I think I may find my way down there. Uh, what about you, Kate? What are you drinking this morning? Well, or- I did a lot of research to try to yeah, find a Montgomery-worthy uh, drink, but. <laughs> A PhD um, you know, in Christmas nogs, right? That's right. But as a scholar, my research was stronger than my uh, <laughs> my application of uh, what I discovered. So I, uh, yeah. So anyway, I was trying to find a uh, a cocktail, a drink that combined red currant wine and raspberry cordial, and mm-hmm. I did find some very interesting uh, red currant recipes. So there's a red currant smoothie I came across, like for your morning beverage, and then a red currant gin, which might might be a nice way to end the uh the evening um on a mm. christmas uh christmas evening so there you go <laughs> but you didn't get quite there no that's right i'm drinking water 
<laughs> of course, we have uh, we're all in the midst of uh, maybe long teaching uh, days uh, online. So yeah, probably probably not a bad approach. I, although it does put me in mind. You know what we should do is next uh, summer or fall when when they come due, we should find a red current patch and do like an outside episode where we go and we hunt red currants down. You know, come back with, with uh, red tinted fingers and uh, and uh, puckered faces. I think it would be a good good move. All right. I think we're really testing poor Christy here. Yeah, that's right. Well, and, and I'm, I'm sure there's a red current wine specialist somewhere in Prince Edward Island. Uh, you know, if, yes. Uh, we, we just a have biologist. to. Yeah, that's right. We just have to hunt them down. <laughs> hunt them yeah. down. Of course, we could, we can nerd anything out. Look, we're just picking berries. No, no. No, no, there's a whole set of worlds behind the berries, right? That's so. right. That's how we do things. That's right. Good stuff. And Christy, what are you drinking this morning? Um, I just have like a regular coffee, but I'm like a coffee all day person. So <laughs> even sure. in the evening, I'd probably have coffee with a little little something in it. So Wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's so like the Jap Japanese when I lived there, that was their sort of modus operandi and, and Dutch are pretty good at coffee. Are, are you like a French press, Euro press, Bodum? I did a pour over today. Yeah. Uh, there we go. That's what I like <laughs> to do. So that's probably what <laughs> I would do. That's fancy. Well, well, since uh, I, I, uh, in honor of the episode tonight, I will have, um, what is a local Red Island ciders, one of their, uh, main brews is Father Walker's dry cider. Do you, do you folks know the story of Father Walker's no. dry cider? No. Yeah, okay. Some of you do, some don't. So Father Walker was a priest um, in Eastern PEI, I think in the, in the late 1800s, so, so the, the Victoria, late Victorian era. <clears throat> and he decided they were going to have a family picnic. Uh, this was a fundraising picnic, I believe, if the story uh, goes as told. And he was able to get, Father Walker was able to get three big barrels of nice new apple cider donated for all the kids so that they had something to drink while the while the parents uh, wandered around with whatever happened to be in their tin mugs and and this uh this was a fundraiser we had all the things that you can imagine and then it turns out that father walker managed to procure not uh <laughs> so not virgin apple cider not the stuff that you get uh you know two days after the apples have been picked but the stuff that's been sitting a little while it turned out to be alcoholic apple cider it turned out to be a remarkably a remarkably successful picnic and a great fundraiser uh, <laughs> and has gone down as one of Prince Edward Island's stories. Uh, and so uh, I love that Red Island Cider, one of our local companies have picked that up and run with it as one of their flagship um, ciders. And I'm also, so, but because it's still morning where we are, I'm, I'm drinking actually a Bengal spiced tea, which I'm mm. sure is, is not, um, not period piece, but I'm, I'm drinking it in a, a clay mug by local artist, Maddie Anderson, who I think actually spent her first semester, part of her first semester at art school, having to do it online. So it's been a funny, 2020 has been a funny year. So good stuff. I love this tea though. It's great tea. Okay. Well, good. So we've got our, our drinks. We'll have a little toast at the end of the episode. We've already started to talk about kind of how we've uh, some tumbling into Montgomery and some great Montgomery stories. When you think of um, Christmas time though, I, 
I, I'd love to hear, you know, Elisa and Kate, like what, what you know from history. It seems to me that we've, we're actually much more traditionalistic. We've amped it up a lot more than certainly a Victorian or Georgian early 20th century family would have done. Like I, I read through the journals, it kind of seems to me like Montgomery is just trying to get Christmas done so that she doesn't have to do any more concerts for a few months. <laughs> now, that's a little older view. But what was it kind of what was the feeling like uh, back in the day? I don't know if you can capture that. Did, did they have Christmas trees? Uh, what, you know, did they exchange presents? What was kind of going on in that world? So when I was looking for a section to read for today, um, mm. I kind of scanned over some of my favorite books. So I checked in on Jane and Emily, um, <laughs> <laughs> just saw what they were doing. And um, I find it kind of varies per book how Montgomery portrays it. Um, mm. So like in Emily, they do exchange like small gifts. They kind of get like one gift per family as a whole. And mm. they get like, bibles and like little kid slippers um but i also uh, i actually have the carolyn collins christmas treasury so i mm -hmm. took a glimpse through there and they're like we make lace collars and i was like oh i never thought of that yeah. so i think i think it's a little it's less um spectacular but almost more meaningful Oh yeah, yeah. There's isn't there like an old story that's really just a grandmother telling her old-fashioned Christmas stories? How there wasn't we had never heard of a Christmas tree or something. So this would be a yeah. early Victorian figure talking mm -hmm. to kind of sort of late Victorian children or something about the days of yore. So we actually have sort of the echo of that. Yeah, that's a great that's a great observation, Lisa. I don't know if you have anything to add to that, Kate. That was a yeah. A I mean, the Christmas tree is interesting, right? And by the way, Christmas has a beautiful Christmas tree behind her. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and, and podcast listeners, we get to see one another, but you you just get the audio. So you have to use your imaginations. So <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Um, and I always thought associated the Christmas trees with Prince Albert, Queen Victoria's um, husband, um, and Christmas trees being a German tradition that he brought over. So we're talking, what, 1840s oh. um, to England. But um, I just I did a little research right before the uh, the podcast started. And it looks like George III's wife in the very early 19th century, so early 1800s, she was also German, um, had a Christmas tree at court. But, you know, we're talking about, you know, the very like upper echelons of British society. So it's interesting, Brenton, that you can, this in this PEI story, looking back a generation or two, that there were, were no memory of Christmas trees. I, in the passage I'm going to read from Andy Wind, Anna Windy Poplars, they definitely go out and get a Christmas tree. As oh, good. Like. Yeah, good. Um, you know, which Anne has to think, you know, through carefully because she doesn't like cutting the tree down. But uh, I mean, for us, hunting the tree was a big part of growing up mm -hmm. in Rhode Island. And, and looking back, of course, they're terrible trees. Like, like the ones that we got from the woods were like, to, yeah, well, compared to what you can get on these tree lots yeah. now or these groomed tree lots that we have in, yeah. in rural parts of the country and, yeah. and stuff like that. But my dad did tell me when he was 14 or 15, he had an old truck and, and he grabbed a Christmas tree for the family and he brought it back. But someone in Hunter River wanted to buy it. And he kept doing that. He actually spent all day going and hunting for a Christmas tree, sawing it down putting it on the truck and then coming to, back to Hunter River and selling the tree. And so so it took him it took him all day in order to get a Christmas tree for the family, but he had his Christmas spending money too. So it was kind of a funny, uh, nice little, yeah, nice little story, except for the fact he wasn't a legally licensed driver. It was all a good, it's all a nice right. story. Yeah. That makes it a better story, really. Yeah. yeah get, 
hunting the Christmas tree was always a big tradition in our family and they all went again this year. So I was sad to, to miss out on that. They're in Newfoundland. Um, and it's funny. I remember when I was a kid, my uncle would always have the perfect tree, like a farm Nova Scotia Christmas tree. Mm. And it would always bother my dad. He's like, but my <laughs> uncle would say, I'm not, you know, I'll get a Newfoundland tree when they can start growing them like this. And when I was a child, like I just thought that Nova Scotia was a, uh, <laughs> a land of Christmas trees. Of course, of course. And of course, like in Newfoundland, uh, uh, well, not in the interior, but, you know, a lot of places would be, they'd be kind of wind beaten Christmas trees, I think, by the time you get them home, right? There's, yeah. they've certainly. The producer of the Charlie Brown Christmas tree. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And unfortunately, you're, you're, uh, we're sort of uh, quasi locked down. So you're not able to do that, that family Christmas. Uh, That's right. With, uh, sorry, I guess Atlantic Canadian, pan, pan Atlantic Canadian Christmas this year, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Laura Robinson, Montgomery Scott. I was just yeah. saying on a call yesterday that all the other Atlantic provinces broke up with Nova Scotia. <laughs> it's kind of what and happened. <laughs> Although we're not allowed to see yeah. each other uh, anyway. So, but it's, it's, um, it's too yeah. bad. But Halifax is a large international city. It's bound to, it's bound to, to have uh, complex issues in something like a pandemic. Right. So uh, yeah. And so Elisa, do you have like a particular Christmas tree besides putting um, saucy Montgomery quotes mm-hmm. up? um so my christmas tree has typically come in a box uh (laughs) like third time second hand um because we like to share the christmas spirit it's got to be worn in and well loved um but the last couple years we have gotten real christmas trees uh the hunting has not been a big thing for me it just kind of appears in my living room one day and i go can i put ornaments on it yes and so decorating is the big deal in my family yeah that's breaking right. out all the ornaments we've collected over the years that's where the tradition is is it yeah mm-hmm. and yeah. uh and what about christy do you have a special christmas tradition that you do uh like for my family we always had real trees i've got a fake tree this year but last year, I like went out into my parents' ditch and like cut down this little Charlie Brown <laughs> tree. I loved it, yeah. uh, but I just don't have space for it this year because I'm trying to like work in my place and like live. I'm here all the time, so I'm like, I'm just gonna be fake this year, and I want to clean it up all the time. And yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, well, that's good. Well, let's let's okay, let's hear that first story, um, the the Christmas tree hunt story that you're gonna tell from Anne of Windy Poplars. Do you want to set that up for us? Sure. Yeah. So I've been, uh, I just reread all of the stories and well, I guess fiction, uh, novel excerpts in Christmas with Anne and other holiday stories, which is a collection that was put together by Rhea Wilmhurst. And this edition is one from my childhood. So it was fun to revisit it. Um, so like I said, lots of short stories in there, but then excerpts from Anna Green Gables and Anna Windy Poplars. So um, I'm going to read a couple of passages um, from Windy Poplars when Catherine Brooke comes to visit Green Gables. And uh, so you'll remember that uh, Catherine Brooke is Anne's prickly colleague at the Summerside High School. And I see Catherine as a bit of a shadow figure to Anne. So Catherine's also an orphan and her life uh, is really shaped by not being raised by a Matthew and Marilla. She's taken in by relatives who are unloving. Um, and that that childhood experience really stifles her life financially, socially, emotionally. Um, she, so, she's the uh, she's the character that she intends to pay back every dime 
that they spend. She has to pay back every dime. Yeah. So as a result, she always wears shabby clothes, which bothers Anne. And she lives in this terrible boarding house. Um, So Anne goes to the boarding house and invites Catherine uh, to Green Gables. And Catherine resists initially. She thinks it's an act of charity, but she goes along. And it's really a moment of redemption and transformation um, for Catherine. So Catherine, in the passage I'm going to read, she's been at Green Gables for a while. She, yeah, she's starting to kind of feel changed by the experience and she's opened up to Anne. She's told Anne about her terrible childhood and adulthood. And she's also told Anne about her real dream of traveling, which of course ends up happening for her. Okay. So after she opens up to Anne, Anne says, we're going to be friends and we're going to have a jolly 10 days here to begin our friendship. I've always wanted to be friends with you, Catherine, spelled with a K. I've always felt that underneath all your prickles was something that would make you worthwhile as a friend. So that is what you've really thought of me, I've often wondered. Well, the leopard will have a go at changing its spots if it's at all possible. Perhaps it is. I can believe almost anything at this Green Gables of yours. It's the first place I've ever been in that felt like a home. I should like to be more like other people if it isn't too late. I'll even practice a sunny smile for that Gilbert of yours when he arrives tomorrow night. And then so the second passage I'll read is them getting ready for Christmas, which has the Christmas tree getting scene. So Saturday and Monday were full of gay doings at Green Gables. The plum pudding was concocted and the Christmas tree brought home. Catherine and Anne and Davy and Dora went to the woods for it. A beautiful little fir to whose cutting down Anne was only reconciled by the fact that it was in a little clearing of Mr. Harrison's, which was going to be stumped and plowed in the spring anyhow. They wandered about gathering creeping spruce and ground pine for wreaths, even some ferns that kept green in a certain deep hollow of the woods all winter until days smiled back at night over white bosom hills and they came back to Green Gables in triumph to meet a tall young man with hazel eyes and the beginnings of a mustache which made him look so much older and mature that Anne had one awful moment of wondering if it were really Gilbert or a stranger. So that's how you get ready for Christmas at Green Gables. <laughs> that's really nice, yeah. And and quite a, a short piece that gives you kind of that that captured moment, right? And the spirit of Green Gables that's mentioned there. Now, I think, Elisa, you have for us an earlier story that is maybe the, I don't know if the beginning of what we have here with the, with the Catherine tale in a sense, the, how do how do you create Christmas at Green Gables? Because Anne is going to transform whatever space she enters, right? As a child. Mm -hmm. So what happens here in the Christmas? What are you going to, what are you going to read for us, Lisa? Um, So the section that I have is actually Matthew's gift to Anne, which is her infamous puff sleeve dress. Um, And while I was kind of contextualizing this, they don't mention a Christmas before this um, from what I've read. So it's like we can I don't I can't cite my sources out of my brain. I'm so sorry. Um, But basically, they're saying that uh, we can assume I think it might have been Carolyn Collins, actually, maybe Uh, they're saying that we can assume that her first Christmas was pretty like unspectacular or like normal um, Mm. because the first real mention we get of Christmas is her getting this dress. And it's less about and sensibilities of Christmas and more about Matthews. Mm, nice. Yeah, um, that's, good. that's a good switch in perspective there, I think. Yeah. Because uh, we all know Matthew is, oh, he's very shy and he's very socially distressed. Um, so he goes, he notices and sticks out and he's like, 
I don't know people, but I feel like that's not correct. And that's not how it should be. (laughs) And so he puts himself through all the trouble of like going to the store and there's a woman and he can't speak to her. And so he gets a rake and he gets pounds of brown sugar and Marilla's mad at him. And he's like, I guess I'll just go see Rachel Lind, um, who offers to make the dress for him. And so it's about, this unrolls over about six pages. So I will start at this passage here. Christmas morning broke on a beautiful white world. It had been a very mild December and people had looked forward to a green Christmas. But just enough snow fell softly in the night to transfigure Avonlea. Anne peeped out from her frosted gable window with delighted eyes. The firs in the haunted wood were all feathery and wonderful. The birches and wild cherry trees were outlined in pearl. The plowed fear fields were stretches of snowy dimples and there was a crisp tang in the air that was glorious. Anne ran downstairs singing until her voice re-echoed through Green Gables. Merry Christmas Marilla, Merry Christmas Matthew. Isn't it a lovely Christmas? I'm so glad it's white. Any other kind of Christmas doesn't seem real, does it? I don't like green Christmases. They're not green. They're just nasty faded browns and grays. What makes people call them green? Why, why Matthew, is that for me? Oh Matthew. Matthew had sheepishly unfolded the dress from its paper swathings and held it out with a depreciatory glance at Marilla, who feigned to be contemptuously filling the teapot, but nevertheless watched the scene out of the corner of her eye with a rather interested air. Anne took the dress and looked at it in reverent silence. Oh, how pretty it was. A lovely soft brown Gloria with all the gloss of silk and a skirt with dainty frills and shirrings, a waist elaborately pin-tucked in the most fashionable way with a little ruffle of filmy lace at the neck. But the sleeves, they were the crowning, crowning glory. Long elbow cuffs and above them two beautiful puffs divided by rows of shirring and bows of brown silk ribbon. That's a Christmas present for you, Anne, said Matthew shyly. Why, Anne, don't you like it? Well now, well now. For Anne's eyes had suddenly filled with tears. Like it, oh Matthew. Anne laid the dress over a chair and clasped her hands. Matthew, it's perfectly exquisite. Oh, I can never thank you enough. Look at those sleeves. Oh, it seems to me this must be a happy dream. So then Anne feels she cannot eat breakfast. And there was one part that I thought would be like a good kind of like, this is a new year. We're going to make resolutions. We're not going to follow through, but don't feel bad about it. Uh, Because Anne um, says that... I feel that I ought to be a very good girl indeed. It's at times like this, I'm sorry, I'm not a model little girl, and I always resolve that I will be in the future. But somehow it's hard to carry out your resolutions when irresistible temptations come. Still, I really will make an extra effort after this. <laughs> that's sort of, uh, that's, that's well done, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it's a magical blue dress, I guess, or brown dress, right? Yeah, it's blue in my mind because of this yeah. Kevin Sullivan. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, there it is. Yeah, there's a picture of Christmas with Anne. Yeah, that's right. Beautiful. Yeah, the blue dress, she's got blue on behind, but the Kevin Sullivan film sort of ruined me. Right. <laughs> Um, and and each of the, I think each of the adaptations captured I think the Catherine Brooke character and the Matthew character in, in interesting ways, right? Mm-hmm. They they seem to be important characters to try and get right. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and with an E series, Matthew's got a much more robust uh, 
<laughs> story set of storylines, right? The 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 dress becomes um part of a whole kind of romantic loop. I think yeah. that happens right in the right. story. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <clears throat> so in, intriguing, intriguing other possibilities that are there. Well, okay. Well, thank you, thank you for sharing. We want to uh, to have a little cheer, and so I'm I'm going to be reading a longer story. It's called Christmas at Red Butte. And it's really a prayer, I guess, a prairie Christmas uh, story. And Montgomery spent what her fifteenth, sixteenth year on the prairies in, in Prince Albert or thereabouts, and so uh, and and really spent most of her Christmas not not in Prince Edward Island. And I'm not sure that her Christmases in Prince Edward Island with her grandparents would have been as luxurious as they were when she had her own children in Ontario. But this Christmas at Red Butte is kind of the it's, it's sort of what I imagine is her O. Henry story, the gift of the Magi kind of story. And I don't know that that Montgomery knew O. Henry or knew this story, but it's really hinting at the same direction. Some of Montgomery's Christmas stories are kind of moralistic. They're kind of like the best Christmas pageant ever kind of like heartwarming tale. Um, and, and so I want to end with that, but because it's a longer piece, what I want to do is just kind of close off and do our cheers for the new year. So to raise your, raise your mugs there. Uh, you won't hear a clicking sound on the other side of this podcast because, you know, <laughs> we're in four different locations, <laughs> you know. But uh, but best wishes to the New Year's and this Christmas to, yeah. to you three. To, yeah, to 2021. To 2021. The technical director, uh, Christy McKinney, and to Elisa Gillespie, who uh, does uh, research and editorial work for the Montgomery Studies Journal and also for Kate, uh, the, the boss of all things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> The coordinator of so many Montgomery things, uh, you, you'd be amazed. <clears throat> and and I just I hope for great things for the Modcast and for all the mm-hmm. Modcast listeners. Uh, if you have your own Christmas ideas, maybe for our 2021 episode, feel free to write us there in and we'll start gathering those. Your favorite Christmas mm-hmm. memories, maybe we'll we'll give you a call and 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 have you read them to us and and really gather these things together uh, in a way uh, because I think this year where we're feeling so dislocated and disconnected and we're actually literally physically distant from our family and extended family. Mm-hmm. It's um, one of the things. I like about this Red Butte Christmas is it's one of those I'll be home for Christmas stories. And I think it's worth finishing. So once more, let's raise our cups. Oops. (laughs) Well, here's to Brenton too. The um, Elizabeth Epperly Early Career Award winner um, and so much else. And uh, I know you've been having so much success with the Pilgrim in Narnia um, as well. The blog this this year, as well as teaching tons of courses and everything else (laughs) you do. So thank you, Brenton. It wasn't. It wasn't a quiet year. For, it was a quiet year, right? Because there's yeah. nobody around. But it wasn't like a unbusy year. But I'll, I'll, I'll still be glad when this year tilts forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, not, just in, not just in the solstice, but in the turn. So not just as Saturnalia turns to Christmas. Uh, you know, as we, what always winter never Christmas. As the uh, as Christmas turns to melting snow. I guess it is in Narnia world. As all those things turn, I'll also be glad just for the sheer calendar change. Yeah. <laughs> Just right. To, Here's to that. Just the right 2021. <laughs> All right. Cheers, everyone, and thank you for Cheers. joining us. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Christmas at Red Butte by Lucy Ma Montgomery. This story appears in the Christmas with Anne of Green Gables and other stories collection. 
Of course Santa Claus will come, said Jimmy Martin confidently. Jimmy was 10, and at 10, it is easy to be confident. Why, he's got to come because it's Christmas Eve, and he always has come. You know that, twins? Yes, the twins knew it, and cheered by Jimmy's superior wisdom, their doubts passed away. There had been one terrible moment when Theodora had sighed and told him they mustn't be too much disappointed if Santa Claus did not come this year, because the crops had been poor, and he mightn't have had enough presents to go around. That doesn't make any difference to Santa Claus, scoffed Jimmy. You know as well as I do, Theodora Prentice, that Santa Claus is rich, whether the crops fail or not. They failed three years ago, before Father died, but Santa Claus came all the same. Probably you don't remember it, twins, because you were too little, but I do. Of course he'll come, so don't worry a mite, and he'll bring my skates and your dolls. He knows we're expecting them, Theodora, because he wrote him a letter last week, and they threw it up the chimney. And there'll be candy and nuts, of course, and Mother's gone to town to buy a turkey. I tell you, we're going to have a ripping Christmas. Well, don't use such slangy words about it, Jimmy boy, sighed Theodora. She couldn't bear to dampen their hopes any further. And perhaps Aunt Elizabeth might manage it if the colt, if the colt sold well. But Theodora had her painful doubts, and she sighed again, and she looked out the window far down the trail that wound across the prairie, red-lighted by the declining sun of the short, wintry afternoon. Do people always sigh like that when they get to be 16? asked Jimmy curiously. You didn't sigh like that when you were only 15, Theodora. I wish you wouldn't. It makes me feel funny, and it's not a nice kind of funniness either. It's a bad habit I've gotten into lately, said Theodora, trying to laugh. Old folks are dull sometimes, you know, Jimmy boy. Sixteen is awfully old, isn't it? said Jimmy reflectively. I'll tell you what I'm going to do when I'm sixteen, Theodora. I'm going to pay off the mortgage and buy Mother a silk dress and a piano for the twins. Won't that be elegant? I'll be able to do that because I'm a man. Of course, if I was only a girl, I couldn't. I hope you'll be a good kind, brave man, and a real help to your mother, said Theodora softly, sitting down before the cozy fire and lifting the fat little twins into her lap. Oh, I'll be good to her, never you fear, assured Jimmy, squatting comfortably down on the little fur rug before the stove, the skin of the coyote his father had killed four years ago. I believe in being good to your mother when you've only got the one. Now, tell us a story, Theodora. A real jolly story, you know, with lots of fighting in it. Only, please don't kill anybody. I like to hear about fighting, but I, I like to have all the people come out alive. Theodora laughed and began a story about the Real Rebellion of 85. A story which had the double merit of being true and exciting at the same time. It was quite dark when she finished, and the twins were nodding, but Jimmy's eyes were wide open and sparkling. That was great, he said, drawing a long breath. Tell us another. No, it's bedtime for you all, said Theodora firmly. One story at a time is my rule, you know. I want to sit up till mother comes home, objected Jimmy. You can't. She may be very late, for she would have to wait to see Mr. Porter. Besides, you don't know what time Santa Claus might come, if he comes at all. 
If we were to drive along and see you children up instead of being sound asleep in bed, he might go right on and never call at all. That argument was too much for Jimmy. All right, we'll go, but we have to hang up our stockings first. Twins, get yours. The twins toddled off in great excitement and brought back their Sunday stockings, which Jimmy proceeded to hang along the edge of the mantel shelf. This done, they all drooped obediently off to bed. Theodora gave another sigh and seated herself at the window, where she could watch the moonlit prairie for Mrs. Martin's homecoming and knit at the same time. I'm afraid that you will think from all the sighing Theodora was doing that she was a very melancholy and despondent young lady. You couldn't think anything more unlike the real Theodora. She was the jolliest, bravest girl of 16 in all Saskatchewan, as her shining brown eyes and rosy, dimpled cheeks would have told you. And her sighs were not on her own account, but simply for fear the children would be going to be disappointed. She knew that they would be almost heartbroken if Santa Claus did not come, and that this would hurt the patient, hardworking little mother more than all else. Five years before this, Theodora had come to live with Uncle George and Aunt Elizabeth in the little log house at Red Butte. Her own mother had just died, and Theodora had only her big brother Donald left, and Donald had Klondike fever. The Martins were poor, but they had gladly made room for their little niece, and Theodora had lived there ever since, her aunt's right-hand girl and the beloved playmate of the children. They had been very happy until Uncle George's death two years before this Christmas Eve. But since then, there had been hard times in the little log house. And though Mrs. Martin and Theodora did their best, it was a woefully hard task to make both ends meet, especially this year when the crops had been poor. Theodora and her aunt had made every sacrifice possible for the children's sake, and at least Jimmy and the twins had not felt the pinch very severely yet. At seven, Mrs. Martin's bell jingled at the door, and Theodora flew out. Go right in and get warm, Auntie, she said briskly. I'll take Ned away and unharness him. It's a bitterly cold night, said Mrs. Martin wearily. There was a note of discouragement in her voice that struck dismay to Theodora's heart. I'm afraid it means no Christmas for the children tomorrow she thought sadly, as she led Ned away to the stable. When she returned to the kitchen, Mrs. Martin was sitting by the fire, her face in her chilled hands, sobbing convulsively. Auntie, oh, Auntie, don't, exclaimed Theodora impulsively. It was such a rare thing to see her plucky, resolute little aunt in tears. You're cold and tired, and I'll have a nice cup of tea for you in a trice. Oh, it isn't that, said Mrs. Martin brokenly. It was seeing those stockings hanging there. Theodora, I couldn't get a thing for the children, not a single thing. Mr. Porter would only give $40 for the colt, and when all the bills were paid, that was barely enough left over for such necessities as we must have. I suppose I ought to be thankful for those that I could get, but the thought of the children's disappointment tomorrow is more than I can bear. It would have been better to have told them long ago, but I kept building on getting more for the cult. Well, it's weak and foolish to give way like this. We'd better both take a cup of tea and go to bed. It will save fuel. 
When Theodora went up to her little room, her face was very thoughtful. She took a small box from her table and carried it to the window. In it was a very pretty little gold locket hung on a narrow blue ribbon. Theodora held it tenderly in her fingers and looked out over the moonlit prairie with a very sober face. Could she give up her dear locket, the locket Donald had given her just before he started for the Klondike? She had never thought she could do such a thing. It was almost the only thing that she had to remind her of Donald, handsome, merry, impulsive, warm-hearted Donald, who had gone away four years ago with a smile on his bonny face and splendid hope in his heart. Here's a locket for your gift to God, he said gaily. He had such a dear, loving habit of calling her by the beautiful meaning of her name. A lump came into Theodora's throat, but she remembered it. I couldn't afford a chain to, but when I come back, I'll bring you a rope of Klondike nuggets for it. Then he had gone away. For two days, letters had come from him regularly. Then he wrote that he had joined a prospecting party to a remote wilderness. And after that was silence, deepening into anguish of suspense that finally ended in hopelessness. Rumor came that Donald Prentice was dead. None had returned from the expedition he had joined. Theodora had long ago given up all hope of ever seeing Donald again. Hence her locket was doubly dear to her. But Aunt Elizabeth had always been so good and loving and kind to her. Could she not make the sacrifice for her sake? Yes, she would and she could. Theodora flung up her head with a gesture that meant decision. She took out of the locket the bits of hair, her mother's and Donald's, which it contained. Perhaps a tear or two fell as she did so, and then hastily donned her warmest cap and wraps. It was only three miles to Spencer, so she could easily walk it in an hour. And as it was Christmas Eve, the shops would be open late. She must walk, for Ned could not be taken out again, and the mare's foot was sore. Besides, Aunt Elizabeth must not know until it was done. As stealthily as if she were bound on some nefarious errand, Theodora slipped downstairs and out of the house. The next minute she was hurrying along the trail in the moonlight. The dazzling prairie was around her, the mystery and splendor of the northern night all about her. It was very calm and cold, but Theodora walked so briskly that she kept warm. The trail from Red Butte to Spencer was a lonely one. Mr. Lurgan's house, halfway to town, was the only dwelling on it. When Theodora reached Spencer, she made her way at once to the only jewelry store the little, the little town contained. Mr. Benson, its owner, had been a friend of her uncle's, and Theodora felt sure that he would buy her locket. Nevertheless, her heart beat quickly, and her breath came and went uncomfortably fast as she went in. Suppose he wouldn't buy it. Then there would be no Christmas for the children at Red Butte. Good evening, Miss Theodora, said Mr. Benson briskly. What can I do for you? I'm afraid I'm not a very welcome sort of customer, Mr. Benson, said Theodora with an uncertain smile. I want to sell, not buy. Could you, will you buy this locket? Mr. Benson pursed his lips, took off the locket and examined it. Well, I don't often buy second-hand stuff, he said, after some reflection, but I don't mind obliging you, Miss Theodora. 
I'll give you four dollars for this trinket. Theodora knew that the locket had cost a great deal more than that, but four dollars would get what she wanted, and she dared not ask for more. In a few minutes, the locket was in Mr. Benson's possession, and Theodora, with four crisp new bills in her purse, was hurrying to the toy store. Half an hour later, she was on her way back to Red Butte, with as many parcels as she could carry. Jimmy skates, two lovely dolls for the twins, packages of nuts and candies, and a nice, plump turkey. Theodora beguiled her lonely tramp by picturing the children's joy in the morning. About a quarter of a mile past Mr. Lurgan's house, the trail curved suddenly about a bluff of poplars. As Theodora rounded the turn, she halted in amazement. Almost at her feet, the body of a man was lying across the road. He was clad in a big fur coat and had a fur cap pulled well down over his forehead and ears. Almost all of him that could be seen was a full bushy beard. Theodora had no idea who he was or where he had come from, but she realized that he was unconscious and that he would speedily freeze to death if help were not brought. The footprints of a horse galloping across the prairie suggested a fall and a runaway. But Theodore did not waste time in speculation. She ran back at full speed to Mr. Lurgan's and roused the household. In a few minutes, Mr. Lurgan and his son had hitched a horse to a wood sleigh and hurried down the trail to this unfortunate man. Theodora, knowing that her assistance was not needed and that she ought to get home as quickly as possible, went on her way as soon as she had seen the stranger in safekeeping. And when she reached the little log house, she crept in, cautiously put the children's gifts in their stockings, placed the turkey on the table where Aunt Elizabeth would see it first thing in the morning, and then slipped off to bed, a very weary but a very happy girl. The joy that reigned in the little log house the next morning more than repaid Theodora for her sacrifice. Whoopee! Didn't I tell you that Santa Claus would come all right? shouted the delighted Jimmy. Oh, what splendid skates! The twins hugged their dolls in silent rapture, but Aunt Elizabeth's face was the best of all. Then the dinner had to be prepared, and everybody had a hand in that. Just as Theodora, after a grave peep into the oven, had announced that the turkey was done, a sleigh dashed around the house. Theodora flew to answer the knock of the door, and there stood Mr. Lurgan and a big, bewhiskered, fur-coated fellow whom Theodora recognized as the stranger she had found on the trail. But was he a stranger? There was something oddly familiar in those merry brown eyes. Theodora felt herself growing dizzy. Donald, she gasped. Oh, Donald. And then she was in the big fellow's arms, laughing and crying at the same time. Donald, it was indeed. And then followed half an hour during which everybody talked at once, and the turkey would have been burned to a crisp had it not been for the presence of mind of Mr. Lurgan, who, being the least excited of them all, took it out of the oven and set it on the back of the stove. To think that it was you last night, and that I never dreamed it, exclaimed Theodora. Oh, Donald, if I hadn't gone to town. I'd have frozen to death, I'm afraid, said Donald soberly. I got into Spencer on the train last night and felt that I must come right out. I couldn't wait till morning, but there wasn't a team to be got for love or money. It was Christmas Eve and the livery rigs were out. So I came on horseback. Just by that bluff, something frightened my horse and he shied violently. I was a half asleep and thinking of my little sister, and I went off like a shot. 
I suppose I struck my head against the tree. Anyway, I knew nothing more until I came to in Mr. Lurgan's kitchen. I wasn't much hurt, feel none the worse of it except for the sore head and shoulders. But, oh, gift of God, you have grown. I can't realize that you're the little sister I left four years ago. I suppose you've been thinking I was dead. <laughs> yes. And, oh, Donald, where have you been? Well, I went way up north with a prospecting party. We had a tough time that first year, I can tell you, and some of us never came back. We weren't in a country where post offices were lying loose around either, you see. Then, at last, just as we were about giving up in despair, we struck it rich. I've brought a snug little pile home with me, and things are going to look up in this log house. Gift to God, there'll be no more worrying for you dear people over mortgages. I'm so glad, for, for Auntie's sake, said Theodora with shining eyes. But, oh, Donald, it'll be best of all just to have you back. I'm so perfectly happy that I don't know what to say or do. Well, I think you might have dinner, said Jimmy in an injured tone. The turkey's getting cold, and I'm most starving. I just can't stand it another minute. So with a laugh, they all sat down to the table and ate the merriest Christmas dinner the little log house had ever known.